7 o'clock, y'all sound great. Um, if you're new or visiting, my name's Tyler. I'm a downtown pastor here at the Stone. And if you're new or visiting, we're actually in the second week of our sermon series, our vision series called We Are the Austin Stone. And the point of this series is to each week begin to outline for us the mission God has called us to. To really outline for you, if you're thinking about what is this church about, do I want to be a part of this church, what's the kind of church we want to be? And then you're going to find that in all the things God's called us to be, the chief end of our mission is love. It's love. It's love God, love the church, love the city, love the nations. Because God's word says we should value a lot of different things, but the chief of them is love. And so each week as we go through this series, let me just ask you to do something. Instead of simply hearing this as a series of a leadership of this church casting a vision to you, would you begin to consider what it actually is, which is actually God's vision for you. We didn't make this stuff up. We didn't create love. We didn't create the mission of God. He gave it to us, and what we're doing is saying, here's God's story for you if you've trusted in Christ. Here's his future and purpose and priority for you if you've believed in his son. So each week when we get together, listen as somebody who God may want to say something to, as somebody God maybe wants to change the the future of your life because you realize, oh, this is the mission God has called me to. So last week, we looked at loving God, and this week we'll look at loving the church. And of all the four different loves that we want to have as a people, I think loving the church may be the most complicated. It may be the most complicated because it's not that loving God or city or nations doesn't have nuances and complexities and difficulties associated with them. They clearly do. But the church is unique because of our history with the church, because of our expectations of the church, because of our consistent interaction with the church, it makes it unique. See, with God, city, and nations, they may be difficult, but at least we have more clear categories for them. So with God, we know he's perfect. We may struggle to love him or follow him or trust him, but at least we know the category is he's perfect. He does no wrong, even if it feels like he does. For the city, we know the city is broken. So we we shouldn't be surprised when people who don't believe in Jesus act like people who don't believe in Jesus. The nations need our help. We know that people who don't have access to the gospel clearly need to be a priority in our lives and our time. Now, we, we may never do it. It may be too challenging for us, but at least it's clear in the category that how we define it. But the church is different. The church is different because God gives this incredibly lofty and inspiring vision of what his church should be to a broken group of people like us. That the church is simultaneously full of glory and dysfunction at the exact same time. When you read the Bible, all God does is he continues to raise our expectations as to what the church should be. But the higher you raise expectations, the worse it hurts when you're disappointed by the church. When you're expecting more from somebody, it hurts more when they let you down. And it seems fitting that the language used most often in the New Testament to describe us, to describe the church, is familial in nature. When God talks about the church, he calls us what? The children of God. The bride of Christ. He's saying the church is God's family. It's God's family. And like any other family, it's complicated. For all of you, the family that you grew up in is complicated. Because normally, think about your life, normally your best and your worst memories are associated with your family. 
What is best and worst about you is usually rooted and derived in some part from your family. Family is simultaneously defined by love and brokenness at the exact same time. And you feel this tension, this uniqueness, this complexity like when you go home for a holiday and you see family you haven't seen in a while and distant relatives come all together and you have that sort of picture of all the complexity of family. Like you have those moments where you get together and you retell old stories. And you remember the Christmas gifts you got when you were seven together. You got windsuits and beanbag chairs or whatever you got and you thought that was incredible. You tell those stories and you talk about maybe people that you've lost or things that you lost or suffering you've gone through. And you realize, wow, the, the church really is, incre- I mean, the fam- my family really is incredible because they've walked with me through so many things. And as you're eating dinner together and you're laughing together, you have those moments where you realize, man, family, the idea of family is compelling. And I love being a part of it. But the exact same time in those gatherings of family, you begin to realize, oh, wait, though there's great moments Lurking below the surface is the ever-present reminder that there's still brokenness in my family. Underneath the surface of those conversations and that laughter, there's still that reality of, oh, there's hurt in this room. There's history in this room. Every family has those topics that when they they get brought up, you're like, "Uh uh-oh, here we go, right? You're like, old aunt so-and-so is two drinks in. Here we go. Let's see how this goes, Right? You guys have the people in your family. Like in my family, I know that if politics gets brought up in any form or fashion, in 25 minutes, the yelling will commence. I just know that's how it works. And also in families, you begin to have those moments where someone feels left out and they say things like, you've always treated me that way. You never dot, dot, dot. And you realize, oh, there's history here. There's hurt here. And families go from being joyful and incredible to sorrowful and tense. But then in between those two extremes, do you know what family's like? It can be pretty dull, right? You go back home and you can only retell the same old stories with family so many times. And eventually you're thinking, man, are there any movies out we could go see? Like anything? Any games on? I'll even watch cricket if we want to talk to each other. Like I'm all in. I don't even like cricket. What is cricket? Who cares, Right? Like that, that's what we think. We, we think, it's dull, how do I fill this time? And, that's, and families are all of those things. Joyful, they're dull, they're awful, all those things. Family is complicated. And that's why God calls the church his family, because we're complicated. And God has commanded us, even though the church is complicated, even though the family of God is complicated, he's called all of us to love his people the way he has loved us in such a way that the world could look at our love for each other and see what God's love is like. So before we get into the text, let me make one thing clear. The church is a people. So when I say church, listen, the church is a people. You, it's not a place. It's not a service you attend. You, you, you don't attend church. We are the church. So if you ever want to Jesus juke somebody and say, hey, I'm going to go to church tonight, go, excuse me, we're the church. Like you can just do that if you'd like. It's a great thing to do if you want to get somebody. But the church is a people. So when we say church, we mean the universal church. We mean all believers for all times and all places. But also there's a local church. And what you see is fascinating. Even though in the New Testament it's clear that the apostles view these various local churches as relating to each other in the overarching universal church, 
They still organize and congregate in local assemblies, in local churches, with local leaders, with local believers and local relationships. And we're going to love both. Because over and over again, God makes it very clear that loving his church is not an option when it comes to loving him. Loving his church is not an option when it comes to loving him. Actually, over and over and over again, God makes it abundantly clear that to lack love for his people is to what? Lack love for him. Jesus goes so far as to say that the way you treat the church is the way you treat Jesus himself. It's the way you treat Jesus himself. Why is this? Because the church is God's most prized possession in all of creation. Of everything that God has made, the church is what is most precious to him. And it's not because the church is better than everybody else. It's not because the church is more special than anybody else. It's because it's the nature of God's love placed on us. That's what makes the church special. And one of the incredible realities about the church in the New Testament is how closely Jesus associates himself and unites himself and links himself with us. See, not only is Jesus our savior and our leader, he definitely is both of those things but he also intertwines his life with ours. He says to not love the church, to mistreat the church, is to not love and to mistreat Jesus himself. He says this explicitly, you see this explicitly in the conversion of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, before he was converted, he didn't believe Jesus was the son of God. He's persecuting the church causing suffering for Christians, and then Jesus shows up to him in a vision on, on the Damascus Road to change him and confront him. And look how Jesus speaks to him in Acts 9. Acts 9 verse 1 says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And now, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, now notice what Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus doesn't ask him, why are you persecuting my people? It's not what he says. See, Jesus wasn't there. He's in heaven at the right hand of God. But he says, if you're going to persecute the disciples of the Lord, those belonging to the way, those who profess that Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of all that God had promised Israel, if you're going to persecute them, Jesus says, then you're persecuting me directly. That's how closely tied Jesus is to his church. That the way you treat his people is the way you treat him. We are God's children The church is Jesus' bride. You cannot say that you love somebody and then hate their wife and kids. You cannot say you love somebody and be even indifferent towards their wife and kids. There are a few things, few things that will cause me to go from zero to 60 in my anger level than someone mistreating my wife and children. My oldest daughter, Elle, is seven years old. And one of the things that she gets older She's having more and more of her own friendships and relationships and her own life apart from me. And every day, I just cry a little bit more, and it's okay. 
right? This is who I am right now. And one of the things that happens is she has more and more relationships that I don't know about and friends at school. What is prone to happen is people hurt her feelings. And as soon as I hear her tell a story of someone at school hurting her feelings, I can't help but get overly involved. It's just who I am. And so she's telling me about someone said this to her. I'm like, oh, yeah, where'd she live? Oh, yeah? I could be there in 10 minutes, I think. You know, like I just find myself wanting to be involved because to mistreat my daughter is to mistreat me. So we were at a um, time away with some family friends of ours, and their oldest son is a couple years older than my daughter, Elle. And he wasn't being really mean to her, but he was definitely using his strength to get what he wanted and kind of picking on my daughter. And as I saw it, my instinct is to go, oh, you think you're strong, 10-year-old? Watch this. That's what I, that's what I want to do. I'm like, oh, body slam. And my wife Lauren's like, take it easy, he's 10. I go, I'm so strong. I, I just want to show off, I'm so much stronger than a 10-year-old. Watch this. I have problems. Um, but I just find myself, if you're going to mistreat my daughter, then I want to intervene. Same is true for my wife. When I feel like people are being disrespectful to my wife, I just can't help but want to involve myself. Because you can't say you love me and then treat my wife and kids poorly. And yet, so many people say, I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. I love Jesus. He's great. I can't stand his people. Then what you're saying is you can't stand him. No, but you don't understand. I mean like the Christians who aren't legit like the other ones. He doesn't make that distinction. You can't say you love Jesus and then hate his wife. And we know that. We get that. You, you get that in the positive and negative examples. But candidly, I think most of you here probably are not. Well, some of you here, maybe you've had seasons where you've genuinely hated the church and you have a story to back that up as to why you've been in that place. And I'm glad you're here. But for the most part, in this room anyways, I don't think... Right now, you're probably struggling with hatred towards the church. I think what's much more prevalent in this room, in your life, is indifference towards the church. No, you don't hate it. You think, yeah, I could be a part of it or I could not be. I could go or not go. I could really serve or not serve. I mean, I love the church. It's great. But be very indifferent towards it, towards the people of God. See, you could not be close to me even if you were indifferent towards my family. So let's say I invited you over for dinner, and you walk in, you say hi to me, you're warm to me, but you're just, you're not mean to my wife and kids, you just kind of ignore them. They ask you questions, you give them one-word answers. My kids try to give you a high five, you just give them a little pound and walk away. Let's say you, you pulled me into the room, you go, hey, Tyler, can I talk to you for a second? I said, yeah, sure. You pull me in the room, I go, hey, yeah, what's, what's up? You say, oh, just your family. Ugh, I just want to sit over here with you. I'm like, whoa, like, I would think, what do you mean, ugh? Oh, they're fine. I just don't want to be around them. It's kind of loud. I'm like, you could leave is what I would say. Like, I, 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 just, I may not be mad at you if you were indifferent towards my family, but we definitely wouldn't be good friends. Do you know who my closest friends are? They also love my family. Because you couldn't be close to me and be cold or indifferent towards my wife and my kids. God views the church this way. He views your love for him this way. He ties it tightly to his people. 1 John 4 says this, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen 
cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You can't say you love God and despise his children. You can't say you love Jesus and despise his wife. And the command is not even to love God, it's to just be neutral towards his family. What does it say? Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Even when the church is dysfunctional, even when the church is broken, even when people let you down, you don't abandon them. Because how does a God treat his people? He doesn't abandon you when you fail. He doesn't roll on you and you don't serve the way you should or you sin in the way you said you never would again. What does God do? What does the gospel say? He stays with you. He's bound to his people forever, no matter what. No matter what. So you and I, we love the church because we love God. That's why we love the church, because we love him. And our love for the church is expressed in so many different ways. There are close to 60 commands called the one another commands. There were the apostles tell the church to love one another, forgive one another, and to serve one another, be patient with one another, and kind towards one another. There's 60 of them. And what they do is they give the nuance and clarity and specificity as to what does love look like in different contexts and in different situations we find ourselves in. But of all those commands we could go through, the common principle is this. The way you treat the church is mimicking the way Jesus treated you. That is the principle. If you're ever wondering, how should I love the church? Just think, well, how has Jesus treated me? And then reflect that to the people around you. Jesus shows us this in John 13, 34. This is what Jesus says. It's kind of a summary statement of his, his desire for love amongst his people. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. According to what? Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. So you, we don't serve and encourage and commit and care and forgive and welcome one another for any other reason ultimately than Jesus has done the same to us. We don't love the church because she deserves it. We don't love the church because somehow the church will reward us for doing so. The reason we serve and love the church is because we are convinced as individuals, that's how Jesus has loved me. That's how he cared for me. That's why I'm treating the church this way. It's his love that defines our love for each other. Now, this is that lofty vision I was talking about. This is that task that God has called us to that's incredible. Because we are meant to be, if we loved like that, we are going to be what we're called to be is this alternate kingdom. This different heavenly vision of humanity where love defines all of our relationships. We are meant to be this city set on a hill that shows the world this is what God does for people when they trust him. This is the hope he gives in a deteriorating dark world. And this vision is inspiring until you try to do it. Until you try to love real people who are around you, that's when it gets tough. When your vision of what the church is supposed to be meets the reality of what the church still is. This is where a local church especially is challenging because as it turns out, everyone in the church is just as needy and self-focused as you are. They're just as broken as you. 
They're just as concerned with self as you. And so what happens is you'll watch a video, maybe that we show or someone shows about, here's what biblical community looks like. And it's just like amazing. They're just laughing all the time, reading their Bibles like hugs and they love each other. And you're like, that's the church. And then you show up to a group and you get there and you walk in and it's not a clean house and people are talking to you. You're like, oh, this is no fun. And then you get in a circle because that's what Christians do. We just sit in circles all the time in different places and you gather around, there's a Bible in the middle, and someone goes, so, how's everybody doing? And it's just crickets. And you're sitting there thinking like, oh, these cheese cubes are terrible. Um, that person's not funny. Oh, gosh, they're still talking. What am I going to do? Like, I don't want to follow that guy. What a great week he had. Like, you just, go, you just you're, they're talking, and you're just thinking like, this is not what I thought that it would be. It's not what I thought. And then what happens is the church begins to not look like what you thought it should look like. We begin to justify no longer loving one another. Listen, we only want to obey God to love one another when we feel like the church deserves it. Listen to what I said. We're fine with obeying God to love one another so long as we think the church deserves it. So if the church proves to be worthy of my time, if the church proves to be additive to my calendar and my future and my ambitions, if it proves worthy, then I'll actually make the people of God a priority. But that is not why we love the church. We don't love the church because we always perceive her and perceive the people of God as being beautiful and lovely. The reason we love the church is because that's how God sees his people all the time. The way that God sees you all the time because of Jesus' love for you is lovely and worthy of the lives of the people around you. Listen to how Paul talks about the way Jesus loves his church when he's commanding husbands to love their wives. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, which means make her special, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the words, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. It's Jesus' love that washes her. It's his love that beautifies her. It's his, her, his love for her that makes her lovely. Listen, it was in your most shameful and your darkest moment when God came after you. Jesus gave himself up for you, for you when you were full of blemishes and spots when you had done everything you said you never thought you would, and when you had failed him in all sorts of egregious ways that you didn't even know you would yet, that's when Jesus died for you. He didn't leave you or forsake you. It's his love that made you lovely. And so we look at the church. We don't say, how has the church treated me? I'm going to respond in kind. We say, how has Jesus treated me? I'm going to respond to them in the same way. But the question remains, how do we love the church when the church has failed us? How do we love the church when the church has wronged us? How do we love the church when they won't text us back? How do we love the church when she's far from who God has called her to be? Well, remember, the church is complicated just like you. Just like you. Do you realize you are full of contradictions? Like even the lofty desires you have for yourself, you fail to meet. 
right? And even in your worst moments, even in the church's worst moments when the only way forward because of the sins of the church is confession, repentance, and severe consequence, even in those moments, there's still hope for the church. Why? Because God is with us. Same reason there's still hope for you when you fail, because God is gracious. Not because there won't be any real consequence, but because God has bound himself to his people through thick and through thin. So even in the worst moments, there's hope. And even in the best moments of the church, even the best moments of your life, guess what? We're complicated people. So even in our best moments, there can still be sin. Even in the church's strongest moments, there can still be dysfunction going on all over the place. Why? Because we live in a broken and fallen world with sinful desires still residing in us. The church is complicated. And especially the community of believers that you're around week in and week out. See, loving the church where you live is always the most difficult church to love. Loving the church where you actually live is always the most difficult church to love. It is so much easier to love someone who's far away for a short period of time. So I know a lot of you in this room are in college. I'm sure you'll have this experience some point in the next couple of years. I know I've had it when I was in college. As you travel overseas and you meet another Christian of a different culture and different context, you hang out with them for two weeks and you see the best version of them and they see the best version of you because mission trip you is unbelievable. You hear terrible, but mission trip version of you, so godly, right? Like they don't have Netflix there. What am I gonna do? I guess serve. Like that's what you have, right? So... You go there and you think, they get how to love. They get how to love. My church back home, terrible. American church, terrible. Come back to this gym, terrible. Right? You just keep thinking, nothing here is any good. But the only reason you think that is because you don't know them that well yet and they don't know you that well yet. Right? If they just get to know you more and get to see what you were really like day in and day out, they think, oh, really? Kind of annoys me when you do that. Like, all of a sudden, they feel what you feel. Right, like you, you would get around them and you'd see, oh, I thought they were like the most kind person ever. And you see them yell at their neighbor and you think, oh my gosh, no. Like I thought you were great, right? Because people only get less impressive the more you get to know them. Sorry. They do. Right, the more you get to know people, the more you get to know their flaws and their shortcomings and they're complicated. They only get less impressive the more you get to know them. If you're an engaged couple in this room, buckle up. It's coming for you. And if you're thinking, not me and my boo, we're different, especially you, especially you. We have premarital mentoring for people just like you, okay? (laughs) Here's what I found is heroes and villains, for the most part, there's exceptions, but for the most part, Heroes and villains can really only exist at a distance. Because the more you get to know people, you realize heroes are more flawed than you realize. And villains are more complicated and wounded and weak than you realized. And the more you get to know people, you, you start to see we all have our issues. We all have our flaws. You get around the church that you've been around in this context and you think, it's different than I thought it would be. But you're, all, all you're learning is not that This church in particular is so bad, you're learning building relationships of love is challenging. Building relationships of love is challenging. It takes work. 
So how in the world are we going to persevere through all of this mess and love one another? I got four verses for you with some practical words of wisdom when it comes to loving the church. Here's the first one. Galatians 6.2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So here's what love does. Love commits knowing it will cost. Love commits knowing it will cost. So many of us want all the benefits and all the blessings of the church, but we don't want to bear any of the burden and take on any of the costs. We'd love for the church to serve us in all of these ways, but I don't want to have to bear anyone else's burden. But that is simply not the way communities and relationships of love are built. Like if you don't make the church, its people, the vision and mission of any local church, if you don't make it a priority, no wonder you don't, don't get anything out of it. No wonder when you're like, I attend every couple, every, you know, couple times a semester, church is terrible. Well, it may be that, or it may be that you aren't investing in anybody there. It may be you want all the benefits and none of the costs. And it may be that you think, as soon as I have to bear someone else's burdens, that means that church is broken. No, it may just mean you're finally living out the church the way it's supposed to be. See, the joy of the church, the relationships, the family dynamic of the church only comes as you spend more time together and you serve together and you eat together and you hang together and you rejoice together and you lament together and you grieve together and you obey God together and you hope together. And all of those things only get deeper with time, but it takes commitment and requires you to bear some cost, for you to bear someone else's burdens. But that's what love does. Love commits, knowing it will cost. Second one, Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving as God in Christ forgave you. Here's what love does. Love stands up to our fears. Love stands up to our fears. Do you know why the church is difficult? Because relationships are difficult. That's why. And what happens is people let you down and you get hurt. And it's fear in you that wants to hold a grudge. It's fear in you that wants to be bitter. It's fear in you that wants to be callous. How so? Because the reason when someone wrongs you, you don't want to forgive them, you have a fear that if I forgive them, they'll think what they did was okay. The reason you don't want to be kind is because you have a fear of, I don't want to look weak. The reason you don't want to be tenderhearted because you don't have a fear of looking foolish again because you don't want to look like someone who can't take care of themselves. And the world tells you kindness and tenderheartedness is only for people who have earned it, and yet for the church... I'm kind and tenderhearted and forgiving. Why? Because that's how God treated me and Jesus. You're going to be let down by people in this church. Because listen, everybody in this church has issues. Everybody. Everyone in this room has secret struggles that you don't know about. Everyone in this room has shame you don't know about. And a lot of people in this room are trying to fight their sin and trying to put it to death, but we're still failing And on top of that, all of us have an enemy trying to deceive us. And on top of that, all of us have wounds from the sins of other people that are affecting us in ways we don't even realize yet. 
And all of us have inherited weaknesses in our biology and chemistry and circumstance from the general brokenness of the world. And so when we're wrong, you know what we need to do? Instead of going to somebody and saying, here's what you did and here are all the ways you need to change in order for me to be kind and tenderhearted and to forgive you, to operate out of fear, instead operate out of love and be vulnerable and say, here's what you did and here's how it made me feel. When you did that, I felt disrespected. When you didn't show up on time, I felt like you didn't care. When you made that face, it seemed like I was unimportant. And when you're vulnerable, they can now speak into that. Instead of demanding what they should do, you're coming to them in love and saying, I'm not going to let fear drive me. I'm going to be vulnerable. And then if you're someone who receives that, then you be humble. You let someone say, it offended me or it hurt me when you did this. And instead of explaining it away immediately and saying things, I'm sorry if that made you feel that way, not a good apology. Instead, listen and receive. Because humility listens and considers. Pride shuts down and explains away. Because love stands up to our fears. Third one, Ephesians 4.15. Rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So rather, speaking the truth in love. So love speaks what is best with open arms. Love speaks what's best with open arms. We need people in our lives, and you need to be a person in other people's lives, who will say the truthful thing when no one else wants to. Who will say what God's word says when it's not popular. But you have to be someone who will say the challenging truth from God's word, but also be the person who will stay alongside that person as they try to live it out. Don't just throw truth bombs from a distance and not want to have your life get messy. And I think this is one of those areas where in our generation of people, it feels like one or the other right now. It feels like some of us in the room, we want to be people of love, and so we want to empathize and be kind and walk alongside till the end. And that's a great thing. But we never want to speak the truth of God's word because we think our word is where love is instead of God's word is where love is. If you truly want to be a person of love, give them the word of a God who is love, even when it challenges, even when it corrects, and walk alongside of them as they try to obey it. But on the other side, there's other people who just want to be people who speak truth and want to feel bold and confident, but there's nothing worse than someone who just wants to tell you where you're wrong. There is nothing worse than being around a person who just loves to tell you, here's where you're wrong, and here's where you're wrong, and here's where you're wrong. Just wants to rub your nose in it. That's actually, it's actually not the point of speaking truth. You speak truth not just simply to tell someone they're wrong. You speak truth to say, there's a better way for you to have joy. That's what it is. Truth in love is saying, I want more for you, not less. I don't want to punish you. I want life for you. And I know there's no life apart from Jesus. And this is where Jesus' word leads us to. So I'm trusting that his way is the way of love, not yours. But I'm going to speak the truth in love to you with open arms. I'm not going anywhere. See, we can be a church that has great preaching and great teaching, but if we're not a church who's speaking this to each other, you won't grow the way you're supposed to. Like a great sermon, maybe it'll set some framework, lay some foundation for you, maybe even prick your heart or conscience, maybe cause you to do one or two things, but you won't grow the way you're supposed to if that's all you're getting. 
the way you mature, that's what Ephesians 4.15 says, when we're speaking the truth in love, you know what happens? We grow up. We grow up because of the word of God being spoken in specific ways that I simply can't do from this stage. Love speaks what's best with open arms. And last one, 1 Thessalonians 5.11. It says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Therefore, encourage and build one another up. Love encourages more than it critiques. Love encourages more than it critiques. I genuinely believe that this is an area where we are currently being deceived by Satan, our enemy, right now. I really believe that the church is being enticed to be deceived by our enemy into being overly harsh and overly critical with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Everything in our culture and our age says, be overly harsh and critical. And yet, and yet, that is a scheme of Satan in the church. There's a text in 2 Corinthians 2 where there's a phrase where people in the church will quote it and say, it says, the schemes of the devil. Don't be ignorant of the schemes of the devil is what Paul says. And so people take that and go, you, we think about the schemes of the devil. Okay, what's the scheme of a devil? Like, all right, my car broke down, Satan's in my engine or something, right? Like you begin to think about bad things happening and like, oh, that's just Satan. You know, he hates clouds or, what, or whatever you make up, right? But in 2 Corinthians 2, the point Paul is making, he's saying the Corinthians, what was happening? There was someone in the Corinthian church who had been rude and disrespectful to Paul and had offended Paul. Paul had forgiven him, and yet they kept being harsh and critical of their brother. And Paul says, listen, I've forgiven him. You should too and move on. And Satan wanted them to say, no, no, keep being critical, hold it over his head, keep being harsh. Satan wants you to obsess over everybody else's flaws. He wants you to obsess over where everyone needs to grow. He does not want you to even consider maybe, just maybe, they are growing somewhere in their life. Maybe, just maybe, God is at work in that friend of yours. Sometimes I wonder if the reason we feel like we have to critique everybody so often is because we encourage each other so little. I really wonder that. If we would actually encourage one another more, I wonder if we would actually end up critiquing each other less. Because honestly, in my experience in this church, I've received probably an equal number of encouragement and critique. You're probably similar in your life. You probably, if you really think about it now, all the critiques are most fresh in your brain. If you really sit down and consider it, a lot of us, it's probably weighs it out somewhat evenly. But here's why I think the critiques stick more clearly is because for the most part, the encouragements I've received are very general and the critiques are very specific, right? So it's you did a great job. Good job on that. Here are 14 ways you could grow though. Like, huh, it feels like you thought way more about the critiques than you did the encouragement. Phenomenal, great, fantastic job generally on this thing. But Tuesday at 3.30, why'd you say it that way? Like you just start seeing... We spend so much more time on the critiques than we do the encouragements. But let me tell you this. Do you know when I, and probably when you, want to fight your sin the most and overcome weaknesses the most? It's not when you feel overly critiqued and shown where you fail all the time. It's when you feel loved and supported. I've just found that in my life. That the times I want to give up, times I just want to throw in the towel and just say, who cares? I'm just going to be mediocre and not try to grow anywhere. So I feel like everyone around me, all they point out are my flaws. 
It's when the people around me are encouraging me where I find myself naturally saying, I want to overcome that. I want to follow Jesus in this area. Because encouragement goes further than critique. That's why God commanded us to encourage. There is no Bible verse that says, Beloved people of God, critique one another so your heads will not get too big. That's not a verse. Right? If the Holy Spirit can't keep them humble, you're not going to be able to do it. That's how that works. We're commanded to encourage because I think God knew we would have an easy time critiquing. But we would need to be commanded to encourage one another. Now, I don't know of, the, of those four, if one of them is just registering with you, if there's someone that comes to mind you need to do one of those things towards. Or maybe it's not anything that I'm saying. Maybe it's something totally on a tangent to what I've been talking about in your love for the church. But let me just say this. If God has called you to this church, listen, we cannot be the church God wants us to be without you. We can't. We can't. We cannot be the church God has called us to be without you. If you are not playing your role in loving one another, our whole family here is hindered. Because God calls the church also his body. He says if one part of the body is not working properly, the entire body is affected. What do you see in your body? Even the smallest of aspects of your body affects the whole. Cancer starts as a couple of cells. It's a couple of cells. Though they're very small in relation to the rest of the body, they can have incredible consequences for the rest of the body. Don't let the size of this church make you think you as an individual are not important here. Don't make it think God is so concerned about the individuals of this church that he's saying if the whole church isn't in and loving one another, then the whole church will be affected. That's how important each individual is to him. Because there are people in this church that need to hear the word of God from your mouth. There are ministries in this church that need to be led and served and built up by you and innovated by you. There are wounds you have received in your life that God wants to use this church to begin to heal you. There's ministry that God wants to use you to fund. There are so many complicated problems in this church. He wants to, it's not going to be solved by the people on the stage. It's going to be solved by you. All of us have to play our part in being the church God's called us to be. And the only way you will keep doing that, the only way I'll keep doing that, is not because this church is always going to treat you perfectly. It's not because this church will fulfill all of your wildest dreams as what the church should be. That's not the reason. It's because you taste afresh again and again and again, how does God love me? How does God love me? Because what happens with people, you tend to project onto them the way you think God treats you. So if deep down in your heart, you really believe, you may not say this, it may not be your actual answer, but the way you feel, when you fail, you think God's frustrated with you. You think he berates you. You think he shames you. Well, then how do you think you're going to treat people when they fail you the way you think God treats you? But if you really believe, no, God forgives me and he loves me, he doesn't hold things over my head, but he keeps serving me and committing himself to me, when you remember that afresh, then you realize that's how I treat my brother and my sister. That's the only way we're going to make it. We're not going to be a people of love if it's rooted in the worthiness and the behavior of the people in this room, it has to be rooted in the worthiness and the behavior of God towards us. 
When you see his love for you, then loving his people makes all the sense in the world. And while we, and as we begin to do this messy, slow, long-suffering task of loving one another, we are going to be a part of the most important task in the world. The most important mission in the world to show the world the love of God. Last verse and we're done. 1 John 4.11. He says, beloved, I love that God always starts with his commands in this text with your loved. Beloved, loved ones of God, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now verse 12 seems strange, doesn't it? Beloved, God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God. You're like, what? How does that? It feels very weird in the flow of the text. His point is this. God is is eternal, infinite, and invisible. You can't see him. But when we love each other, you'll get a glimpse of him. It's by our love for each other the world will know we are Jesus' disciples. This is the purpose. He's given our love for each other. No small task of just building up the Austin Stone. The massive task of showing the world what his love is like. And so when we see differences in race or gender or sexual orientation or whatever it may be or politics, we say if we're believers in Christ, we're going to transcend those barriers that cause all the friction and all the divide. Why? Not because they deserve it, because that's what God did to me. He crossed every barrier. Every boundary. And he showed me the love of God has no limit to what it will go to to get me. So I'm do the same for my brother or sister. This church will not be special when we have the best services in the world, the best programs in the world, the best preaching and teaching and worship in the world. We will be special in this city when we have the strongest love. Because where do you see the pinnacle of God's love being displayed? The cross. And at the cross, what is Jesus doing? Loving the church. He's giving himself up for his people. And it's in giving himself up and loving the church, he shows off the love of God. Same is true for you. When you take those small steps of obedience to lay down your life for the church, and we're all doing that together, the world will get a glimpse of what God's love is like. You'll get a glimpse of what God's love is like. And there is nothing, nothing more satisfying and more fulfilling with more purpose than living in light of the love of God and living to reflect the love of God in our relationships with one another. Let's pray together. Father, this is a word that comes with a lot of baggage and history. This is a command that has real people in mind. God, even now, I'm sure there are individuals that are coming to mind that we need to forgive, people that we don't need to give up on, people we need to be patient with, people we need to recommit to. And God, before we do anything, before we obey you in any way, help us first to consider the reason we're going to love, the reason we're kind, the reason we speak truth and love, the reason we do any of this. God, is because that's the way you loved us. That if we ever find ourselves doubting the importance of the church, will we first remember, God, how you view the church. 
Jesus, how it was your love that made us beautiful. It's your love that washed us, your love that cleansed us, your love that called us. It's your love that sustains us, that when we fail, it picks us up. And every good moment has been your love manifested in us. So God, help us not be a people who talk about the love of God, but show it to nobody. Help us not be a people who want to live great dreams and stories for you, but don't want to be obedient tonight. And don't want to reach out tomorrow. So God, for those you've brought to mind, help us obey, help us love. God, in particular, for those in this church, God, who have genuinely been wronged by the church, harassed, abused, and they have every reason to struggle being in here tonight, God, would you make us a people who listen to those who are hurting before we speak? Would you make this a church who hear the stories, and instead of trying to justify what happened to them, we just say, I'm sorry. That we would be a people of love who those who are hurting and broken can come and find a spot and they see a people of patience and kindness because Jesus, that's how you treat us. You love us right in the midst of our mess. So God, that's why we love, that's why we sing, that's why tonight we're going to belt at the top of our lungs, God, in faith who you are that we want our lives to be built on your love and nobody else's because we want to be a people known for our love more than anything else. We pray these things in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen, church, let's stand. Let's sing together.